Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dress listeners, by now you should know that April and I love a good, sustainable fashion brand, (sighs) and nothing is more sustainable than upcycling. So, you know, the practice of repurposing things that already exist on this planet, such as, you know, say, taking a secondhand or vintage piece of stock clothing or textiles, such as men's shirts or tea towels, and refashioning it into something fresh and new. Needless to say, we are super excited about Selena Sanders' work. She launched her business during the pandemic last year, and it was an instant hit. Selena drops new collections each month, and before she does, she offers previews to her 50,000-plus followers on Instagram. And you better be ready to buy, friends, because when her collections drop, they sell out super-duper fast. I actually recently purchased a dress from her, and I was out in the middle of the city, and I had to, like, set an alarm on my phone to be somewhere where I was sure to be having internet access <laughs> because there was one particular piece that I absolutely wanted. And Cass, as you know, I wore it to Versailles on our recent uh, dressed tour of Paris. Yeah, her work is astounding. She really exhibits the artistic and creative potential of upcycled fashions. Her designs are exceptional. I mean, she shows us that you can absolutely create a unique and signature aesthetic, even though you're using upcycled textiles. She has the most beautiful, playfully patterned tops, dresses, and jumpsuits, all created with a bunch of different upcycled textiles, including tea towels, which I would say is her signature, but also quilts, all kinds of different stuff. And she has this ever-expanding range of products, like her recently added shorts and scrunchies. So she really demonstrates that the sky is the limit with repurposed textiles. We are huge fans of clothing that inspires us to dream, that reminds us of the fantasy and joy of dressing. And Selena does all of this while being good to our planet. What follows next is an inspiring story of one woman's journey to finding her sustainable fashion calling with, I must say, lots of unexpected twists and turns along the way. And she is such a delight. We know you will agree, dress listeners. Selena, welcome to the podcast. Selena, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Hi, Cassidy. It's so nice to finally connect with you. And I am just so excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, April and I are huge, huge fans of what you do. And we're super excited to learn all about it. But first, do you have like an earliest memory of cloth or fashion from your childhood that has stuck with you to this day? Absolutely. I was probably maybe three or four. Um, Just to give your audience and your listeners a little bit of background, um, I actually was uh, born and raised in the Philippines, which is in Southeast Asia. And I moved to the United States at the age of 17. And that was in the late 90s. And my mother, Luth Garda, is a designer and she was 
sort of a renowned Filipino designer in her own right in the 70s. And I remember just being at the foot of her mannequin and her snipping fabrics off of the mannequin and me just every time fabric would fall off the mannequin, I would grab the little scrap pieces and next to her, I would sit there and also dress my dolls. So it's kind of like this alongside working with her and she would fondly always tell me, for remembering this also. Well, one, I love that your mother was a fashion designer in the Philippines. I had no idea, and I probably have a ton more questions about that <laughs> coming up. I know. I've listened to all <laughs> your, you and April's coverage of the amazing times of fashion, you know, slims. Like, I Again, I'm such a dress podcast nerd, so I apologize <laughs> if I'll be bringing up some past episodes, but I was just so immersed by the fact that you guys covered slums and that to me was one of my most favorite episodes because I thought I knew about Philippine fashion. No, you guys taught me so much just by listening to that podcast, so. Well, if there's such an incredibly rich heritage, textile and fashion heritage in the Philippines. I mean, I had no idea before reading Gino and Mark's book, Fashionable Filipinas, and then having Mark on to talk about his mom and his mom's legacy. I mean, it's such an incredible textile and fashion heritage. I wonder if you remember anything about that growing up, because I think I read somewhere that you went a fabric shopping with your mom, obviously now knowing that your mom was a fashion designer, that makes so much more sense in kind of these formative years for you, even if you didn't know at that time that you wanted to be a fashion designer. Yeah, I almost felt like they were little nuggets that were just implanted in my brain that kind of formed my future in this industry. And sometimes there are moments when I'm doing something and then it just comes back because I'm like, oh, Jeez, I almost have this like innate flashback in my mind about what had happened before that led me to where I am, I believe. And, you know, little things like because my mother, like I said, was never trained, but she was such a fan of fashion. And you, if you think about the Philippines, colonized country, right? Colonized by multiple empires, Spain, America, Japan, and I really did love going through photographs of my family and like really talking to my parents about how my mom even got into fashion. And really for her, she always said that, especially flashing back to now and how easily accessible fashion is in one form or another, she said that they really lived in a very, very different time because in the Philippines, think about it as an archipelago of multiple islands. It's really, really difficult to travel from one island to the other, Manila only really being the central capital and where we were in Ilocos Norte, which is in the very southern tip of the Philippines, it would take you about 12 hours of winding mountain roads and valleys to get to Manila. So there is a huge delay of basically goods being traveled from the Philippines, from Hong Kong, China, um, all these other places, the United States, moving all the goods into Manila and then getting to where we're from. So my mom usually would tell me they had such an impatience for um, the goods getting to them. So it was really important to be very, very resourceful and still being able to participate in what the television is dictating around that time as far as trends, but wanting it right now because there's an insatiable need for having something very, very fancy in an event. The Philippines is such a very highly socialized community as far as 
all the neighbors know each other. There's a lot of fiestas, which celebrate many, many different, you know, in terms of like it's garlic festival. It's this uh, festival of the Ave Maria, which is, you know, a Catholic type of a festival. There was always something happening. Um, Sunday mask was such a big thing. And so the women really like to dress. And so my, my mother personally was already upcycling around the time when upcycling wasn't really something that had to do with sustainability. It was mainly just a necessity. And her favorite fabrics to upcycle were the things that I like to upcycle now too. And these are all just bed linens and curtains. And um, her claim to fame is katsa, which is basically a word for muslin and bead sack. Um, there was an abundance of bead sack in the Philippines. Rice is the number one commodity for food. Um, and so she would d- dip dye feed sacks with the prints and everything. They would sequence them. They would embroider them. They would put hand paintings on them, tie dye, and then create them in these kind of beautiful 1960s, 1970s silhouettes from, you know, kind of the A-line short length dress to matching like voluminous coats that, you know, like Jackie O used to wear. Do you have pictures of this? I have pictures of my mom's fashion show days. Unfortunately, not the earlier ones because there was a huge fire that happened in 1974. And this was way before I was born, um, which destroyed a lot of her earlier work. And there are other stories, unfortunately, of her being exploited as she moved on later on to uh, various countries. She had lived in Australia for two years. And then she had lived, obviously, in the United States. Um, And unfortunately, she was undocumented. So there were times when she would, um, her documentation status was exploited and they used her work, they would steal pictures and, and all of this stuff. So she had an archive of beautiful things that she just remembers and some little snippets from what people have hidden and now are resurfacing. But um, a lot of them have been lost, which is really sad. But the ones I do have, I've been keeping them because she's not also very good at digitizing <laughs> and keeping them. So I've been basically taking everything that she finds. And I have a li- like a little chest of treasures from her earlier work. Well, can you say her name again? And then we'll just put it out there in the universe. If anyone has any of these pieces in their wardrobe or any of these press clippings or anything, maybe they could reach out to us and let us know. Because, I mean, this is honestly how we find these things sometimes, right? Well, thank you so much. I know that you guys have such a worldwide audience too, which makes me so excited. Um, So her name is Luthgarda, L-U-T-H-G-A-R-D-A. And in the Philippines, her tag around that time is make him love you more in a Luthgarda original. That was sort of in that around that time, that was kind of her tag and moving on after, you know, many years and years and years of her not designing. And then finally back in the 90s, she kind of revived her namesake brand. It wasn't the look anymore of the Lithgard of the Philippines, only because she had to make everything herself by hand, as opposed to having a whole team of a sample room and um, pattern makers and dressmakers. She did not have that anymore. And so the look of her pieces have completely sort of morphed into something else that um, reflected the times of 90s Los Angeles. And it became Luthgarde, like avant-garde. So Luth and then G-A-R-D-E. Um, and it would just say Luthgarde Originals. It's kind of like her, basically her 90s brand after that. 
Okay. I'm learning all of this now. I had no idea. And it's <laughs> all making so much sense as this foundation for what you do now, which we are going to talk about in a minute. But first, I want to know about what you did before starting your own brand, because you're this you know, star-eyed young college student who's going to become a fashion designer. Um, what happened after you got out of fashion school? What direction did your career take? Well, you're bringing me back. <laughs> because... <laughs> I don't know a lot of people, obviously, um, just from like stumbling across my Instagram account, which is really kind of my main platform. Sometimes, you know, we see imagery all the time and we have no idea that there is such a deep history and root, I guess, to the inception of some of the pieces we see and the beautiful pictures we see online now that are so easily available via Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever you may be finding um, your inspiration or um, just the images that we all dive into nowadays. I actually have been in the industry for about 16 years now, coming up in June. I graduated in 05 and my first job right out of college was a little brand called St. John Knits in Irvine, California. (laughs) (laughs) Just Um, a small brand. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Are you familiar with St. John? I'm sure because you're a history, fashion historian, like I know that you know, but for some of your listeners who may not know who St. John is, it was um, founded by Mrs. uh, Marie Gray, and she started it in, I believe it was in the 60s, kind of middle 60s, early 70s, and she was a fashion model based in Orange County. And um, she would, when she would take her own handmade, hand-knitted suits, that now we know as St. John suits, right? It's a very signature, unmistakable. And all the casting directors and some of the um, department stores that she would wear these to uh, were so interested. And that's how she started. She actually had her first order out of her garage. And then later on to become this very, very important, especially in the world of ladies who brunch, you know, the women in politics, you know, think about Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, so it's, it's really the only, technically the only around that time when I graduated was the only few very luxury houses in Los Angeles or California, because at this time, the Rodarte uh, sisters were not even around. Um, and even Hedy Suleiman, am I saying his name correctly? Mm-hmm. Of Yves Saint, uh, yeah, Saint Laurent. I know that he had come to LA to start his collection and house it in Los Angeles. These, these houses have not even really been around really. And um, if you think about it, or Monique Lulier, who is another technically like a, a high end bridal line uh, wasn't even here. So I had always dreamed, like I said, of being in the world of high fashion. St. John had a couture line. They did show in fashion week in New York and they heavily, heavily recruited Otis college graduates. And so I basically went up against a lot of my classmates to try to get that one coveted assistant designer spot. And I ended up getting it and I was really, really excited. But at the same time, St. John was going through a huge shift. It used to be owned by the Grace and then it went public and then um, was sold. And the Grace were basically bought out. And then a new um, creative director, Tim Gardner, who used to be creative director at Calvin Klein, now took reins of St. John. And then that's when Angelina Jolie became kind of the, um, you know, the muse and like the spokesperson ambassador of the brand. And 
I had an amazing time there creatively because it was really something where I just remembered sitting along with the other junior designers and waiting for that like temperature controlled truck that would roll down filled with yarns from Italy. And we would like unpack them and basically um, we would work with engineers there and we would design the knits for the next collection. Tim around that time was obsessed with Jackie O and Bonnie and Clyde, you know, so there was such a, there was such a sense of the continuation of what I learned at Otis being such an art school and then really kind of getting into this world. Unfortunately, though, the realities of fashion crept up. I was so young. I was only 22, 23 around that time. And I really worked very hard, but at the same time, you know, there, there were a lot of pressures of a company that was transitioning into um, new management and it became very, very difficult. Um, and what I mean by that is just watch The Devil Wears Prada and just imagine that Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I mean, again, I, I gained a lot of friendships and I learned so much. So I would never feel very, you know, um, ill-hearted about my time there but I do have to say when you are that young and you are not as strong maybe or not as mature because I was not mature it's quite immature actually you know um I just thought of everything as sort of this like world that really was not rooted in reality and it it crept up on me and what I mean by that is I got incredibly stressed out and sick and my my then friend at that time had moved to Minneapolis and worked for the complete opposite of St. John, which is this very known big box store called Target in Minneapolis. And she knew I would cry to her almost every day about like just some of the stresses that the deadlines had been pushing towards us. And she said, oh my God, your lifestyle there is so different than mine. And she would tell me about her amazing work-life balance. And basically they flew me out to Minneapolis on a very nice summer day, <laughs> no snow. And um, I, we were walking by the lake and eating ice cream. And she had showed me her beautiful condo by the lake. And, and I just said, maybe I should just take that leap. Again, when you're young, you just kind of want to experience everything and know everything. And um, so I worked at Target and then the recession hit, you know, the fall of 2008. Oh my goodness. Right. And at that time, my mother had already opened a store on third street, actually not that far from the Beverly center. And she said, just come home. Um, just help me with my brand and, you know, just leave target, come here. You don't have to pay rent. And, you know, of course, financially you're always worried as a, you know, as a young, young 20 something, I came back to LA and, and after that, I just did a lot of freelance. I freelance for every company you can imagine, including a uniform company that made uniforms for the Marie Kay woman. <laughs> and they also used to do uniforms for like Boeing around that time, Pan Am. It's like one of the oldest uniform companies, but I really loved working there because we did a lot of illustrations and stuff. And then um, I also worked for BCBG as a freelance designer. And then I taught college level design. I was an assistant chair at a university here in Burbank. And then I got into footwear design, <laughs> which was another crazy ride. Did that for about three years and then went back and doing more of the factory side of design. So, um, and catering mainly to all the department stores, including Target, since 
I worked at Target for a long time. Um, they felt that I, I knew the customer enough. And then with the combination of my production background, I used to travel to China quite a bit, almost, you know, embedded in China at the factories there. And that's really when I had firsthand experience the thing that we all dread today sometimes as I, and I know that this is, it becomes such a more nuanced conversation because um, sustainability is one of those things that we all aspire to have, but it is also a privilege to be practicing sustainable practices. But when I went to China and Guatemala and a lot of our factory bases, um, this is where I really saw the mass volume and waste that the fashion industry was producing. I mean, I had worked at one on a project where they had ordered a million units of a, what around that time they called this um, sublimated pop, which is basically a polyester garment that is printed with a bunch of papers that had the art on them. And they were huge around that time. So um, a million of those. And I just remembered they would say, oh, if we sell 60% sell through of this one, one order, everybody is going to make their millions. And, you know, we're going to give bonuses to all the managements and, you know, all the head senior people. But then I come to realize a lot of the people that worked on these orders, factories, workers weren't getting paid. And on top of that, polyester fabric that a lot of the times you wash once and it's just basically disintegrated are all disposable fashion. And I also witnessed things that were incinerated at the request of some of the brands because they just couldn't, they didn't know what to do with them. They had already made their money, but they had created so much waste that it was so much easier for them to incinerate instead of them just buying it off or storing it in a warehouse or um, a lot of the times too, even donating it. Most of the people who have been donated to none of the wanted the garments. So that to me became such an eye opener because coming from Otis, having this idea of what fashion was all the way to, you know, my first job ever at St. John and then realizing that there's more to fashion, not just the product, but also the people themselves and how it's so important to think about the well-being of people that create the garments and then kind of going through fashion education where I'm just seeing all these very moldable, exciting young minds and being able to try to give them a sense of hope and guidance Um, as to what the industry is going to be all the way to just, again, my being embedded in the factories and being able to see the firsthand waste that the industry produces. And so, yeah, and that, that all of these pieces have led me to basically where I am and the brand that I am slowly kind of building. It's pretty obvious, I'm sure, to our listeners. It, you're talking about fast fashion. You went you went from St. John's, um, where you're creating <laughs> things in Italy, and and you had this very, it sounds like, hands-on experience in the design process to designing more and more for fast fashion brands, which are outsourcing, obviously, production to China. 
and then getting firsthand experience of what that actually means. And thank you for sharing this perspective because it's really this firsthand account that I don't know how much we've actually talked about or talked with someone who's provided a firsthand account of this on the show. We've certainly talked about it, but not necessarily with someone who's worked in that industry and can speak to it firsthand. And, you know, it's just astounding, like one million units for one piece of clothing. Yes. One piece of clothing. How many billions of pieces of clothing are produced, right? It's it's mind-blowing. It actually, there is, I think, business of fashion, there is, there was, I think last year, um, a figure around 2.8, and I'm going to double check this to make sure that it's fact-checked, but 2.8 billion with a B per month globally. <gasps> is created. And in my mind at first, my friend and I were talking about this and we wanted to check because I said, billion, I feel like that's a year. (laughs) That's what I thought you were going to say. No, it's per month globally. And yeah, just, just put a pin on that because I think that really just makes you go, what is happening? Um, There are brands like fast fashion brands. And I know obviously it's up to you if you want to like say the names, but like, you know, we know all of these as the fast fashion brands that are all selling direct to consumer through websites, whether it's Sheen or ASOS. And ASOS actually had said when they had a new uh, CEO that what they will do as a strategy to beat all competition is to release 3,500 different styles per month. Well, and they, I think it's, how do you say it? Sheen? I think it's Sheen. Well, Sheehan, and we'll just S-H-E-I-N because we don't know necessarily the pronunciation, but they've been in the news a lot lately because of not only are they creating fast fashion, they're knocking off independent Mm -hmm. designers like I'm sure yourself, (laughs) designers like yourself that are creating unique fashion and they're just repurposing or reselling it as their own design without obviously any credit to the designer. So it's a huge, huge problem in so many ways. This whole time we're having this conversation, I just can't help but think, okay, this is literally the exact opposite of what Selena does now. You have your very own brand, Selena Sanders. It has a huge sustainability and social justice platform. April and I are huge fans. And it's the exact opposite of what you're just talking about. And it's only, I believe, a year old. Yes. So can you tell us what happened in the last year that changed really the course of your career? Because as I understand, even starting this own label was a bit of a fortuitous accident. Maybe not something you knew was going to happen, but we're all so glad it did. Absolutely. And and one thing I, I just have to reiterate is we have all gone through this pandemic in such a kind of out-of-body experience. And I personally am always kind of in the feeling of grief um, for the many, many millions of people that this pandemic has affected so negatively But we also, as all the different movements that happen, whether it's in the Renaissance or, you know, every time that there is, um, like even around war times, right, World War II, there's a lot of these sort of rebirths that happen. And honestly, I don't think that I would have even been able to start this brand if the pandemic seriously did not happen. Being in the industry for over 15 years plus, I have always had this sort of love-hate relationship with fashion. I would sometimes say I don't understand why I felt like I was almost born to this vocation and felt like 
I didn't really know anything else. And if I quit this, this industry, as I had attempted to many, many times, just because of all the little things that I've seen, I mean, I am very grateful. I've seen a lot of beautiful things, but I've also seen a lot of really horrible things. And there were many times that I tried to start something on my own, but never really succeeded until after I had gotten the text that I was going to get laid off from my full-time job, I decided, you know what, maybe this is around the time. We were all locked down. March in Los Angeles was, Los Angeles was the first city to lock down in America. And I basically said, I am a non-essential person. And I'm okay to admit that I am a non-essential person in the sense that I I think art is essential, but in the scope of hierarchy of being essential, fashion is really technically at the bottom, right? Because that's something you as a subjective thing. But in reality, that's what everybody felt. And I thought maybe I should just switch to an industry that's a lot more essential to the world and actually will do some good. But in the midst of me kind of trying to figure out what to do and transitioning to a change in career and a plan in doing that, I decided to make use of my time and to not lose my sanity. I love the idea that I can control my emotions and my therapy really is in creation. So I just basically went to social media because that's really a sense of community that we had to all run to only because we couldn't see people in person anymore, whether it's via Zoom or just kind of browsing on Instagram and looking at everybody's creations, like isolation, hashtag isolation creation. And um, there was a YouTube influencer. Her name is Beth Jones. She only does styling out of thrifted looks. And she had put out the style challenge. And there were other sustainable vintage influencers that, you know, were putting out these style challenges to just dress up at home, take a photo of your outfit and share it. And I was just so, I was enjoying it so much because I could see people's creations, pulling things out of their closet, things they already had had and dressing up for no occasion. But I didn't have any clothes because I was in the process of moving from one residence to another and I had everything in storage but I had one thing in my possession, which was my sewing machine. I always take it anywhere I go. If I am out for long periods of time somewhere, I always take it with me. So I also had a shed full of fabrics, vintage fabrics I had collected for a very long time. A lot of them I had collected with my mother who used to take me sourcing um, when, you know, when she would source linens and bed sheets and stuff for her own line, she would take me in all these rag houses in Los Angeles. They were warehouses full of stuff and they were all categorized in the different areas of fabrications or like you get your jeans here, your band tees here, your, your quilts here. And we would just dig and pass. I mean, there, these were mountains of fabrics that I would climb up to and we would dig and I'd collected things since the 90s. And my husband had always said, Selena, you got to do something about these. Do a yard sale or something, but (laughs) these need to get out of this place. Um, And I find myself being this, what I always, you know, kind of romantically say, I'm a textile antiquarian. I am not a hoarder, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I am on the verge of textile hoarder, really, if you think about that. Um, Because I also collected things that maybe were not even worth anything, but because I felt that I, I could see the potential in them. I had held on to them for projects. We always do that, right? Like we look at things and we're like, oh, I can make this into something. You tuck it away and they just start to make 
a pile. And so basically I, I made a top. Um, it was out of a tea towel because I love tea towels. I don't know why I love tea towels. The first time I ever came across a tea towel was at the Rose Bowl flea market. The year was 2003. It was my, with my mom and my aunt. It was 5.30 in the morning. It was so dark. It was October. And we had on these like headbands that had the little um, like lamp. lamps yeah. on the head <laughs> so that we could see what was going on. And I pulled this um, tea towel and it was a calendar tea towel. And it had a picture of um, basically a cat coming out of a basket with flowers around it. And I basically said, you know, I still have some of the tea towels that I'd pulled from before. And I don't know, for some reason, I said, I should just use these tea towels. And basically, fast forward, um, she saw that I made this top. I tagged her on it. It was in the early developments. I had not even sewn it together. It was just kind of piece. Just like when I do my sales now and my launches, I just sell fabric. So I show the bodice fabric, the sleeve fabric, and that's how you basically purchase the garment. And I take your measurements and then you know, I sell it to you, but she saw it. And she said, when you're done, Selena, could I kindly just at the top, I'll wear it. And I, I, I seriously, I called my best friend because we're both huge fans. And to me, she's such a rock star. And for her to have noticed my work, I sent it to her. And then basically that's when a flood of DMs from women all <laughs> over the world had asked, hey, I want this top that Beth is wearing. How can I order it? And again, had no plans of starting a business. I was going to exit already and try to get into the food industry, actually. I was thinking about just like working for a local restaurant and maybe learning some skills and just be a home cook, you know, and try to sell my my food or however. And um, basically I said, oh my God, there's something here. And of course I don't have production. It's coronavirus time. We couldn't get out. I had a sewing machine. I had fabric. I started to just sell them as a combination. And I think I had about like 250 women ask that day, but I was only able to fill full 20 because I only had 20 tea towels and a couple of sleeves to go back to. And basically I said, I'm the only person doing this. So I don't even know what the turnaround time is. And everybody said, oh, take your time. I'm not going anywhere. I just want one, but I'm not going anywhere. And yeah, so I, I figured out how to like, obviously make them package them and it's heavily improved. So that whoever had purchased the first batch from, you know, last year, there's obviously some updates that I've put in as the year had progressed and just learning to wear tested. And um, because really at the end of the day, I, I want these garments to last only because of what I've learned in fast fashion. Um, number two, I want to make sure that I use fabrics that will decompose and disintegrate over time. And that includes truly 100% right natural fibers. I do also even use natural fiber threads. And so to help with the disintegration, there are some times where there may be some vintage pieces that have some polyester in it from the 70s and 80s. But um, as long as I'm telling my customers on how to take care of them and really that educational portion of it is really important to me. But also it is sort of this homage to my mom who at such a young age, and I also did this because when I was growing up, we were all measured for stuff in the Philippines, like uniforms were all made to measure when we would have Sunday dresses, birthday party dresses, everything was made to measure. The tailor actually that we used was across the street from our house. 
Shout out to Esther's gown in Loag City, Philippines. I don't know if they're still around, but I loved her shop. It was such a small shop in the corner across the street from my house. Um, there were fabrics everywhere. And then you would just kind of sit down with Esther, who was the main seamstress, and she would draw out the pieces and you would get measured, pick your fabric. And then a month or two later, you'd get your piece. And that has kind of been the model I've adapted to the majority of my pieces also, because it's really important for me that things get made for you. You get a, an opportunity to also work and collaborate with me and picking the fabrics. And then at the same time, it's very important that it fits you into your lifestyle and exactly what you need, because I want you to have this special connection. And it is also something that I'm trying my best to make it affordable for people to experience this. Because one thing I've learned from both my experience at St. John and all the other higher end, um, you know, companies. And on top of that, just being able to, you know, kind of imagine me at the houses of Jean-Paul Gauthier or McQueen. I mean, these are things that are really reserved for people who make so much money. And it is kind of my way of putting also a nod to that sense of slow fashion um, and really made to measure, but also trying to make it a little bit more accessible to a bigger audience. Fast forward to today, you're no longer just making blouses. You have a whole product range. And I'm so excited because I feel like every month or every couple of months, there's something new. Like this month, you have shorts all of a sudden. And me and April were freaking out. So we're like, oh my gosh, you're shorts. <laughs> a couple of months ago, there was jumpsuits. Now you have headbands, scrunchies. Can you tell us what it feels like a year later and what your company looks like now? Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up only because, of course, again, when I was saying about slow fashion, right? And in my mind, I was also thinking, oh, maybe that also means silhouette and skew count. But I also have to admit, I am a fashion designer. Like it, it is in my mind, it's always about breathing that escapism and fantasy. I'm always in, trapped in my own fantasy land. And um, I am just incredibly grateful to every person who have purchased a garment from me, including April. I'm so, so, I was just like so excited to hear that she had wanted a piece from me because without the the support and the purchase, none of this would exist today. I am genuinely saying that all of you make the work possible and Basically, in terms of just describing sort of the evolution, the tea towel top that I am known for is our staple. It will never go away because I think it's one of those classic pieces that if you are a believer in romanticism and maximalism in terms of design and style aesthetic like I am, then that is a uniform for you. And it is something that even if it's not trendy today, you will still wear today because I, that is how I look at my wardrobe now. I love to look at what's happening in the runways and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it, I take inspiration from those, but I will never be dictated that this is what's happening now and it will die tomorrow. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. That is the antithesis of what we are. It really is saying that, hey, I will dictate fashion. You will not dictate what fashion is to me. And um, I love the idea of being able to basically include everybody to this fold, um, regardless of gender, regardless of age. And that's something that I've been really amazed by the age range of the women that have worn my pieces. So 
again, the tea towel pop and the tea towel, I think in general is just my kind of what I am known for. And I'm keeping true to that. And I, I love the idea of that, but within the tea towel, it is a kitchenware. You know, if you think about kitchen linens, I just kind of am running away and having fun with the idea that the kitchen is my domain, whether I am cooking or whether it is in the collection of the the different linens that I collect for my kitchen. So I always just kind of sometimes look at these things that I use and I think, what else can they become after I'm done using them? So whether they morph into like the headband I'm wearing today, this is actually a placemat. It's like a four-piece placemat that I've incisioned from in half and connected both and folded like three times and basically put a headband through and stitch and voila. From a placemat, you have like what I'm calling a halo crown. And then, you know, with new things like shorts, those are actually tablecloths that I just happen to stumble (laughs) upon a gold mine of dead stock, pristine tablecloths that I had held on to for about like a year and a half almost. And I actually waited for the right time to use them because one thing too, that when I start collecting fabrics, I don't instantly make them into something because I kind of like them to to sit and stew in my mind. And I, I want to make sure that when I make the silhouette, it's a silhouette that you will use. And also it will be a little bit harder for you to part ways with it only because it's such a usable item. And and so um, I just felt like it was these scallop edges. There was an abundance of them right around the edges that I felt like a pair of shorts or pants would be perfect for them. And whatever's left over in the middle, we make for sleeves. And um, I'm always striving to make zero waste pieces as much as possible. So around the time when um, masks were still in demand, a lot of the times we would cut some of the pieces of the sleeves and make those into masks or now scrunchies for the leftovers now that masks are not necessarily as high of a demand. Um, And then of course, like headbands, but Every single month, I always have this sense of it's kind of my design experimentation um, because I don't really work with a lot of people. Social media has become kind of my think tank. And when I throw a prototype out there, and the majority of the times the prototypes don't go to waste because it's either I sell them or I wear them myself or I give them to friends. And if I get a read of the demand, then I go and make them. If there's obviously no demand, then I don't have to make anything and nothing is wasted. So. I just love that idea. And I love that as the seasons change, so will my moods, so will my perspective of the fabrics. And Cassidy, I cannot wait for you to see what fall looks like because (gasps) I love fall (laughs) and I love outerwear and layering and, you know, like all these things. And I cannot wait to make these kind of really practical, but sort of very special pieces coming for fall, first jackets and coats and you know, so. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation that went in all these unexpected directions. Um, And I know our listeners are going to look up your work. I'd love if you could tell them about where they can find you and then a little bit about how you drop each collection. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm definitely going to be doing a plug. I love everybody who listens to Dress Podcast. It, it just becomes so exciting for me to be able to reach out to all of you. And I hope that you will take the time to look at our work. You can find us on Instagram, um, Selena, and that is spelled S-E-L-I-N-A underscore Sanders, S-A-N-D-R-S. And you can also find me 
I'm also on Pinterest, Facebook, same handle. And you can also look at our work and read more about us on our website, www.selinasanders.com. And yeah, we do a drop every third Friday of the month, um, usually around a time slot that's very common to the majority of the world. We always put like the time zones um, in the afternoons, but just make sure subscribe to our newsletter. You can find a link on our website and we only send one newsletter a month. We're not one of those companies to keep sending new newsletters every day <laughs> just to give you like a little glimpse and a preview of what we're working on, including size ranges, prices. And we also accept custom work. We open a window um, once a month within a week of the month, sometimes a week and a half, where you can supply us with your own table linen or um, tea towel, and we can make it in a silhouette that's already established in our own line, um, whether it is the jumpsuit, like you said, the dress, the top, um, and eventually we will probably extend it out um, eventually to outerwear. So many exciting things to look forward to. Selena, thank you so much for being here. This is such a treat. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. And (laughs) keep doing what you girls are doing. I cannot wait to listen to the next episode. Selena, thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey. You know, Cass, this just confirms to me that the future of fashion is absolutely, definitely sustainable. Selena and other creators like her give us all hope that we can in some way reverse this incredibly harmful amount of waste that has happened in the past and also hopefully reverse some of the human rights abuses that occur within the fast fashion industry as we speak. And something we absolutely love about Selena is she brings so many different levels of consciousness to what she does. Foundational to her business is a giving back model with a percentage of her profits going to specific organizations. So really, she reminds us all that you cannot talk about sustainability without talking about social justice issues. They are both intimately intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. And upcycling, I love it so much. It's such a creative approach to combating the needless production of clothing, you know, by utilizing all of these fabrics and textiles that are already here with us on our planet. I know, and I have to admit, I don't know how many of our dress listeners agree with me or have this same issue, but I have this entire pile of clothing that I intend to upcycle someday. I am one of those people who rely on the creativity of people like Selena because I certainly don't have the initiative yet, but maybe you do dress listeners. So what are you waiting for? Yes. And on that same note, please go and check out Selena's work. Who knows? You might consider dabbling in your own version of upcycling next time you get dressed. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. And also remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us with your own fashion history mystery request or another episode suggestion, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast and on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pagram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.